Today on The Voice of Prophecy, we're going to talk about why God insists on exclusivity, why He demands that you only worship Him. So, if Christianity has ever seemed a little too exclusive for you, you might want to catch this episode. We're going to look at some passages from the Bible, so if you have a Bible around the house somewhere, you might want to go and grab it, and I'll be right back. Welcome to another edition of The Voice of Prophecy. I'm your host, Sean Boonstra, and today I'm going to be talking about the Ten Commandments. And of course, that's a topic that's always been a favorite for preachers who want their congregation to smarten up. And it's also a favorite topic for a lot of American Christians who are growing more and more concerned as they see public displays of the Ten Commandments being taken down from public places under pressure from different atheist groups or maybe even the ACLU. So I know there's no shortage of preachers on the radio dial talking about the Ten Commandments, or at least talking about these political scraps in the classroom or the courthouse. But today I want to do something just a little bit different. I want to look at reasons why the Ten Commandments actually make sense for a good life on a personal level. Today I want you to think about why you might consider making the Ten Commandments part of your life. So let's forget for a moment about trying to create an American theocracy or forcing other people to keep the Ten Commandments. What I'd like to do is have you consider why you might want to keep them, why you might want to make them a part of your life. I mean, let's just think about your own private life and ask why God gave us those ten rules at all. I mean, are are God's Ten Commandments just some arbitrary list of rules that God came up with to make our lives hard? Or is there actually some kind of benefit to keeping them? Is there some kind of logic to the Ten Commandments? And again, I want to be really clear that I'm I'm not advocating for a theocracy. I, I might be a preacher, but I absolutely do not believe in the marriage of church and state. Uh, apart from the Old Testament nation of Israel, the marriage of church and state has been an unmitigated disaster every time we've tried it. History books are full of horror stories from people who tried to legislate religious morality, tried to force it on other people. I mean, it it gave us such marvelous developments as the stretching rack or burning people at the stake. So I want to be really clear. I'm not advocating that Christians take over secular government and force their whole world to be Christian, because honestly, forced religion isn't worth anything. I mean, you probably know the old poem, a man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. I mean, you can use coercion to force someone to behave a certain way, but unless they actually believe it, unless they actually want it, you haven't accomplished anything except making them resentful. If you have to force someone to worship God, that's not even worship. And I can promise you, biblically speaking, that God doesn't want involuntary worship, involuntary obedience. God's not interested in a coercive relationship because that would just be, well, slavery. So I'm not going to talk about legislating morality. And we're not going to talk about whether or not the Ten Commandments should be hanging in a courthouse or a schoolroom, even though that could probably be a subject for another day. We could get into that whole debate. What I want to do today, though, is talk about why God wants you 
to make his moral law a part of your life. I want to talk about why you should give his 10 simple rules one more look. So today I'm going to begin right at the top, and we're going to look at number one, the commandment that says, you shall have no other gods before me. Now, why does God ask for that? Does he ask for it because he's afraid of the competition? Is this because he's a God of force, a God who could only ever attract your attention by making worship compulsory? Or is it because he knows what would happen if you choose to worship something or somebody else? What's the reason for this commandment? Well, you can kind of find the answer in the book of Revelation, where you find this incredible scene in Revelation 4. There are heavenly beings worshiping God. And in the process of worship, they suddenly make this statement that gets right to the heart of why we worship the God of the Bible. Here it is now. It's found in Revelation 4, verse 8. Listen to this. It says, The four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within. And they do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Now, these living creatures describe God as the one who was and is and is to come. I mean, they're describing God as eternal, timeless, someone who exists outside the normal realm of our existence. And then over in the book of Isaiah chapter 6, you have this very similar scene where the angels speak in a way that's very similar. And they describe God there as someone whose glory fills the whole earth. So that means God is also part of our world. So to use the language of philosophers, God is both imminent and transcendent. He is both present here with us in this world, in his creation, but at the same time, he exists apart from his creation, completely independent of it. And and that would mean that God is not a part, an integral part of his creation like the pantheists would tell you. The pantheists say God is in the rocks and in the trees and in the birds, but the Bible teaches God is distinct from his creation. He stands above it. Now, of course, you can learn a lot about God by just observing the things he made, but the God of the Bible is not a pantheistic God. He is not in everything. He is not his creation. He stands apart from it. But at the same time, God is not an absentee landlord like the deists would tell you. Right, The deists say that God created this world and ran away from it, and he's out there somewhere ignoring us. The book of Isaiah says this earth is full of his glory. He didn't just start the planet spinning and then head for some other corner of the universe. He didn't leave us here to fend for ourselves. So these are two things we know about the nature of God. He is imminent here with us, and he's transcendent. He's outside of creation. But why should we worship him? Well, if you go back to Isaiah 6... When Isaiah sees God sitting on his throne, he suddenly feels very, very small. He says, Woe is me, I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah shows us that there's something about standing in the actual presence of God that creates this sharp contrast between who God is and who we are. You and I might be tempted to think we're the center of the universe. But the very small handful of people who have actually seen God's throne in vision suddenly feel very small in his presence. As they stand there, they have no question about whether or not God deserves to be worshipped. They can see it. 
But you and I haven't been there. We didn't have that vision. So we have to come to the same conclusion some other way. And in these two passages, Isaiah 6 and Revelation 4, there are some major clues that will help you piece the case together. Why does God want us to worship Him exclusively? Well, I'm going to take a short break, and as soon as I come back, we'll start to unpack what the Bible actually says about that. What does God say about why we should worship only Him? Stick with me. I'll be right back. Hello, I'm Jean Boonstra. Do you feel as if your life has lost its meaning? Just moving from one task to another without any answers to the really important questions in life? Like, is it possible to have a fresh start and to find real happiness? Well, the Discover Bible Guides will help you find the answers that you're looking for to this and to all of life's big questions. Visit us at BibleStudies.com or give us a call at 888-456-7933 for your free Discover Bible Guides. You can choose to study in the format that's most convenient for you. You may either do the lessons completely online or have them mailed right to your home. Both options are completely free of charge. Visit BibleStudies.com and begin your journey today to discover answers to life's deepest questions. Okay, we are back from the break. You are listening to The Voice of Prophecy. My name is Sean Boonstra, and today I'm tackling a question that honestly is too big for just one show. But that's what we do here at The Voice of Prophecy. We pick up these major, massive questions, and we never have time to explore them fully. But what I'm hoping is that we'll give you a place to start investigating these topics for yourself. And if you contact us, we'll give you the resources you need to keep studying further. The question that we're asking today is simple. Why does God say in the Ten Commandments, you shall have no other gods before me? And the really simple answer is, there are no other gods. And I know that's not the politically correct thing to say, but it is what the Bible teaches, and I'm a Bible teacher. It's kind of the whole point of the Bible. There is only one God. But why should you worship him? Well, just before the break, we were looking at these two passages, Isaiah 6 and Revelation 4, passages that actually show us angels worshiping God. And right now I want to look at Revelation 4 because it actually gives us the reason we should worship God. Listen to this. This is Revelation 4, verse 9. It says, Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the twenty-four elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne, saying... Now listen to this carefully. We're in Revelation 4, verse 11. Here's what they say. You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. See, the, the, the reason heaven worships God is because he's the source of our existence. He's the reason we're alive. He created everything, and everything continues to exist only because of him. Paul reminds us in the book of Colossians that all things were created by Christ, and in him all things consist. In other words, he made this world, and he holds it together. Every breath we take only happens because God exists. Another way to say it is, if God doesn't exist, then neither would you. And the living creatures who exist in God's presence give us that as the reason they worship God. It's simple. God 
is the Creator. God is the source of life. And that's the reason God's people were always told not to worship anything or anybody else. Because there is nothing else. There is nobody else who gives you life. I mean, listen to this statement in Jeremiah chapter 10, because this really says it all. This is Jeremiah 10, verse 11. Thus you shall say to them, The gods that have not made the heavens and the earth shall perish from the earth and from under these heavens. He has made the earth by his power. You see, the the reason we worship the God of the Bible is because there is no other God. If you go and make something else the center of your existence, the whole focal point of your personal universe, what you're doing is hitching your wagon to something that will never be able to pull you along. It's a little bit like eating empty calories. It's a little bit like hooking up to a life support system that isn't even plugged in. If you are separated from the one who made you, you are missing a key component of what it actually means to be human. You and I are made in the image of God. Now, of course, there there are lots of voices here in the 21st century telling us that we shouldn't want a relationship with the God of the Bible. Why? Well, because God is awful, they say. We can't trust a God like that. I mean, take Richard Dawkins, right? He's a good example. Now, Dawkins, the poor guy, is probably every preacher's whipping boy. But, to be fair, he did put his thoughts in print, and he sold a lot of copies, so it's fair to look at it. I want you to listen to how Richard Dawkins describes the God of the Bible. And this comes from his book, The God Delusion. Listen to this. He says, The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Now, I don't agree that it's fiction, but that's what Dawkins says. The most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it. A petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak. A vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, philicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. Now, when Dawkins put those words in print, that description of God, skeptics all over the world said, Amen, or whatever the atheist equivalent of Amen is. Amen. That's our problem with God. We just don't like his character. But you know, Dawkins' assessment of God actually stands in stark contrast to the assessment of those who know God best. They say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So so somewhere, there's been this disconnect between the skeptics and the prophets who knew God intimately. Somewhere, somebody's not getting something, or somebody's not telling the truth. I mean, after a few moments in the presence of God, Isaiah clearly understood that the biggest problem in this universe isn't the warped, twisted character of God. It's the warped, twisted character of the human race. Isaiah doesn't say in his description that God is unclean. Isaiah says, I'm a man of unclean lips. I'm the one who's not clean. But then, what about the way the Bible says that God's glory fills this earth? How do you reconcile that statement with the reality we live in? I mean, this world where we live is a place where children get abducted, and people go hungry, and women are raped, and people are cruel. We live in a place where it's hard to imagine that this planet is supposedly full of the glory of God. It's hard for you and I to see what the angels are talking about, at least 
until you read the whole Bible, which tells this story of a broken relationship, the story of a human race that dramatically damaged its connection with the Creator. The Bible teaches that the pain and suffering we see in this world isn't God's doing. It's the result of our free will. It's the result of our decision to worship something else, our decision to put ourselves on the throne. Now, that's the way Paul describes it in his letter to the Romans. It's in Romans 1 and verse 20. Paul says, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. In in, in other words, you can look around and still see the fingerprints of God all over the place if you look. Right? Paul says you can find God by examining his creation. He's not in his creation. The creation isn't God, but you can find his fingerprints there. So he says, since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Who's without excuse? Well, the skeptics are. Because if they're honest and they look around, you can see somebody put this place together. And he says this of those that claim there is no God. Verse 21 of Romans 1. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools." and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man. Now, here's what Paul's saying. You and I started to worship creation instead of the Creator. We took our eyes off of God, we took away the worship that He deserves, and we started to worship the things God made. We exchanged God's glory for something else. And the heartbreaking mess we face on this planet every day is the result of us changing the arrangement. You and I are the ones who cut off the relationship. You and I are the ones who stormed out of the house. But the good news taught in the Bible is that in spite of the way we slighted God, God has refused to turn off the porch light. In spite of our rebellion, in spite of the outright hatred that we show for God, He still aches to have us come home. He still wants you to make Him the center of your existence. Why? Because you happen to be the center of His. God's heart is so wrapped up in you that God the Son actually became one of us for all time, and He gave His life to save you. And the book of Revelation teaches that God's plan is to eventually move to this world and live among us forever. It's remarkable. The arrangement was damaged by us. That's why we have the mess that we live in. God's glory hasn't changed one bit. Is he still worthy of our worship? Well, I've got to take another break, but don't go away, because when I come back, we'll bring this whole subject over home plate. I'll be right back. Hello, I'm Jean Boonstra. Do you feel as if you have more questions than answers in your life? Are you searching for answers to some of life's biggest questions? Well, the Discover Bible Guides can help you find the answers you're looking for. Visit us at BibleStudies.com or call us at 888-456-7933 for your free Discover Bible Guides. Visit BibleStudies.com and begin your journey today to discover answers to life's deepest questions. 
And welcome back to the show. You are listening to The Voice of Prophecy. We've been on the air since 1929, long before I was even born. My name is Sean Boonstra, and today I'm talking about why God is worthy of your worship. And the simple answer that we talked about in the beginning of the show today is that, well, there just is no other God. God is the reason for your existence. You were made in the image of God, and apart from Him, you'll never truly know what it means to be fully human, because to be fully human means to have a connection with the one who made you in His image. Now, if you make something else the center of your existence, you will never be what God designed you to be. But in order for you to put God in His rightful place in your life, you're going to have to invest some time. You're going to have to discover the glory of God for yourself. You're going to have to understand why angels say the earth is full of His glory. You're going to have to discover why the people who wrote the Bible saw Him and felt small in His presence and recognized that He's worthy of worship. We have to go and find that information because right now, the way we see the world, the way we look at this disaster zone we live in, it doesn't seem like the earth is full of God's glory. You know, there's an old story in the book of Exodus. It's one of my favorites. Moses asks if he can see God's glory. And the details of that story in Exodus 33 actually give us some of the keys we need to understand why we should worship God. He asks to see God's glory. And here's how God answers Moses in Exodus chapter 33. This is verse 19. God says, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. God describes his glory as his goodness, and, and then he says that he will proclaim his name to Moses. Now, in Bible times, a name was not just a label. A name was a description of your character. You and I still say to this day that someone has a good name when they have a good character. God's glory is his name. God's glory is not just a shiny presence. God's glory is not just some big display of power. God's glory is his name. God's glory is who he is. I mean, just listen to what happens when God actually grants Moses his request and shows himself. This is Exodus 34, verse 6. The Bible says, And the Lord passed before him, that's Moses, and proclaimed, now here it comes, the name of the Lord, proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering, and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Now, what did God just describe? He described his character. God's name is his character. God's glory is who he is. If you were to boil this description of God down to just two words, you might say God is merciful and just. That's who he is. And if you boil it down to just one word, the way the New Testament does, you might say, God is love. Not a fluffy, hallmark love, but a real, authentic, self-sacrificing, merciful, and just love. You know, there was this one occasion when 
One of the disciples comes to Jesus and says, Lord, show us the Father. You'll find it in John chapter 14. And Jesus says, He who has seen me has seen the Father. In other words, Jesus is a hands-on, vivid description of what God is actually like. Jesus shows us the very character of God in flesh and blood, real physical terms. He's the embodiment of God. And the person of Jesus actually creates a problem for guys like Richard Dawkins. I mean, his critique was aimed at the God of the Old Testament, but you'll note that his critique is not actually aimed at Jesus. And the reason for that is simple. I mean, who hates Jesus? Nobody does. Even Christianity's harshest critics say that Jesus, if he existed, was a very good man. They'd like Jesus. But they don't like the God of the Old Testament. So somewhere there's been a disconnect. Somebody's not reading the whole book, because the Bible clearly teaches Jesus is the God of the Old Testament. He's the Redeemer of Isaiah 44, the Yahweh of hosts. Jesus is the presence that led the children of Israel through the desert. Paul writes that in his letter to the Corinthians. Jesus is the sacrificial lamb that gives his life for sinners. Jesus is the very embodiment of God. So if you're going to criticize the God of the Old Testament, you're going to have to reconcile your thinking with the character of Jesus, because Jesus is the truth of the matter. And you know, before this whole thing is over, before the world wraps up, the Bible says there are people who figure all of this out. In Revelation 14, they're described as people who have the name of God in their foreheads, the character of God in their minds, and they call the world to worship the God who made the heavens and the earth. And over in Revelation 15, this is what God's people say. This is the final decision of people who have gotten to know God. It says in Revelation 15, verse 3, They sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints, who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name, for you alone are holy. In other words, these people have come to the same conclusion as the angels. They've come to the conclusion that God has always been right, that he's everything he's ever claimed to be. These people worship God, they trust him, and they love him. And when this world finally wraps up, everything else that we worship is going to disappear. Because there only is the one God. There only ever has been the one God. And the reason God asks you to worship only him is because he can already see that last moment coming. He has this plan to remove pain and suffering and restore us to everything we used to be. He has a plan to remove the barrier we put up between us and him. But in order for God's plan to work for you, you're going to have to discover God's glory for yourself. You're going to have to get to know him. And I guess that starts with learning to trust God. And learning to trust him starts with an honest examination of his claims. It means ignoring what people say about God and looking at what he says about himself. And I think you're going to find the Bible a refreshingly honest book. It's anything but religious propaganda. I mean, God doesn't sugarcoat a thing. He shows us the way we really are. He shows pain and suffering the way it really is. And then he steps into the story himself and takes the brunt of it. He even allows us to murder his son. Look, let's be honest. I mean, everything else in this world keeps on coming up empty for you. You can worship power. You can worship your own ambition. 
You can worship your own wants. You can worship thousands of different things. But none of those things ever made you. None of those things love you. None of those things ever gave its life for you. And, and maybe you don't know where to start. That's why we want to help. In just a moment, you're going to hear about the Discover Bible School, and that'll start you on the path of understanding the Bible for yourself. And honestly, we'll just give it to you if you ask for it. It's that important to us. But make yourself this promise. Don't refuse to worship God until you know for sure who He is. Until next time, I'm Sean Boonstra, and this has been The Voice of Prophecy. Hello, I'm Jean Boonstra. Do you feel as if you have more questions than answers in your life? Are you searching for answers to some of life's biggest questions? Well, the Discover Bible Guides can help you find the answers you're looking for. Visit us at BibleStudies.com or call us at 888-456-7933 for your free Discover Bible Guides. Visit BibleStudies.com and begin your journey today to discover answers to life's deepest questions.